Essa é uma conversa muito importante sobre o que está acontecendo na guerra da Rússia contra a Ucrânia. Eu vou fazer essa apresentação inicial tanto em português quanto em inglês, mas primeiro em inglês. So welcome everyone to this very important conversation with Mr. Sergei Alexashenko that I did with Matthew Mejinskis from Porcopolis Economics. Mr. Alexashenko is a Russian economist, former deputy finance minister and first deputy chairman of the board of the Central Bank of Russia from 1995 to 1998. We covered many topics ranging from the ongoing war, the economic consequences of the conflict, the financial sanctions, and the increasing repression within Russia. Please share it and I hope you enjoy it. Então, essa conversa que eu gravei junto com o Matthew Mejinskis da Porcopolis Economics, com o Sergei Alexashenko, que foi vice-ministro de finanças da Rússia e também vice-presidente do Conselho do Banco Central da Rússia entre 95 e 98. E nós cobrimos vários assuntos sobre a guerra, as consequências econômicas do conflito, as sanções financeiras e a crescente repressão dentro da Rússia. Espero que vocês gostem e, por favor, compartilhem o vídeo. Agora fiquem com a conversa. Sergei, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, Fernanda, thank you. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Matthew. And nice Matthew, to meet you, well, thank you very much for, for helping me here and, and have this conversation with Sergei about everything that is going on in Russia with this invasion in Ukraine. And I wanted to start this conversation from the perspective of the Russian population because I've uh, I've read all of your recent newsletters on behind the Iron Curtain, and it's incredible how it seems the Russian population in general then they don't even know about the aggression, the invasion, the world war has been somehow criminalized. People cannot refer to it in Russia. So how is this repression and the propaganda within Russia right now? Uh, Fernanda, you, are, you have described the whole situation and uh, Matthew maybe has some reminiscences from his early years or at least from his parents uh, that it is 100% uh, censorship in Russian uh, media. Uh, in the last two weeks uh, when uh, Putin started invasion of Ukraine, he demolished all independent media. He criminalized uh, any publication of news uh, that tells the truth, uh, that uh, provides any facts about the war. And if you watch Russian uh, TV, the, the, all, all Russian news TV is controlled by the government. Uh, so there is nothing about the war. Some very small phrases about some type of special military operations, but not describing what does it mean, how it looks like. And uh, don't, uh, don't be foolish. Uh, Kremlin uh, invested heavily in Internet, and they have created several uh, what is called troll fabrics that uh, created... Okay, a, a enormous amount of uh, fake content in the internet, and that's why if you will, if you are a newcomer and uh, to the uh, web space and you want to find some news about what's going on in Ukraine, uh, the most uh, the most popular videos will be those provided produced by Kremlin. So uh, for ordinary people, it is not if you are not in, deeply, especially interested in this topic, if you are not ready to spend let's say, significant time to investigate what is truth, 
to understand different viewpoints, it's okay, sooner you will not be able to find the truth and what's going on in Ukraine. So it's it's 100% censorship and very cruel at 6 to 15 years in jail if you say something in Russian media about the war. It's absolutely incredible, the uh, the censorship that's going on at the moment. But I think one more thing that like the average American, for example, doesn't understand is even though it's been very like brutally censored in recent days, uh, my understanding is the Russian media basically from the beginning of the Putin regime has been targeted, uh, you know, from Berezovsky and Gusinsky having their channels taken from them. Uh, it's a long time coming, isn't it? This this process of censoring uh, the media in Russia. Uh, Matthew, you are completely right. Uh, Mr. Putin was uh, inaugurated as a president of Russia in May uh, 2000. And uh, one week later, he launched an attack, he, uh, not he, himself personally, but uh, KGB, FSB, Russian, launched an attack against Media Most, uh, the media empire of Vladimir Gusinsky. And uh, after a year, and they, after months, uh, Gusinsky was in jail. And he was released only after signing an agreement to sell all his media to Gazprom, state control company. Yes, that's that's one of the guidelines of the Putin's policy that is... Uh, in, Putin is very stable in his uh, views, values, principles, actions. So fighting independent media is one of his marks. So you, if, you, if, if you say Putin... Putin uh, fights uh, freedom of speech, you will be right any point in time in those 22 years. And what about the younger generation? Because I understand up until now, even though there's a lot of propaganda and state content, state produced content, there's some free internet uh, content within Russia. Isn't it that the younger generation feels more uh, strongly the, the opposition and the regarding the regime uh, is instead of the in comparison to the older generation and I, I refer to your recent newsletter you published this uh, poll by Alexei Navalny's organization whereas it seems to be increasing at least in Moscow if we uh, think these are, are correct this post at least in Moscow it seems that the views in Russia regarding the aggression, the regime, the economy, seems, seems to be going less favorable to Putin. So how is the younger and older generation uh, views regarding the, the, the whole thing? Uh, Fernanda, you are very right with this question. It's a good question that helps to understand how Russian uh, public opinion is organized. And I would say there is a, a two splits, horizontal and vertical. Horizontal is uh, it's your age, and uh, uh, let's say people above 45, on, uh, because it's a sociological straight uh, under 45 and above 45. So people above 45, they prefer TV. People under 45, they prefer internet uh, as a main source of information. And, but the second, the second uh, vertical uh, line is domestic policy and uh, foreign policy. And I would say that in recent years, the interest of public opinion to foreign policy was minimal. Uh, there was an annexation of Crimea in 2014 that launched a burst uh, of patriotism and enthusiasm and support of Putin. And that was uh, uh, demonstrated as a huge victory of Russia. Russia, uh, Russia is made great again. 
And uh, after that, uh, the foreign policy de facto disappeared. It became not interesting because on state-controlled TV, uh, all about foreign policy was about Ukraine, how bad they are, so blah, 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 but not uh, explaining what's going on in the world. And uh, the, even the younger generation, they have no access to this, this information. Uh, all uh, opposition media, uh, uh, I would say, including myself, yeah, uh, we talk much more about domestic issues about domestic political life, about domestic economy, about domestic repressions, about domestic cultural life. And we concentrated our opinion, uh, attention and our time to these particular areas. And of course, they are more close to everyday life. And in this area, in domestic, in domestic issues, there is a definite split between younger and elder generations. So the younger generations, they are more critical looking at uh, Putin's regime. They understand better what Putin is doing. There is few, uh, less support of Putin uh, in all what he is doing uh, inside Russia. And uh, the elder generation, uh, they, they rely uh, on the government. Uh, many of people who are, let's say, 65 plus, they still remember Soviet Union and dream of the past. And this split, this split is very visible. But as related to the foreign policy, the, the split between younger generation and elder generation is much less visible. Uh, there was a poll of Levada Center in uh, end January, let's say one month before invasion, um, uh, and it demonstrated that there was a question uh, who is to, to blame for the uh, escalation on the Russian-Ukrainian border. And in fact, uh, younger generation uh, said that 7% is Russia, while elder generation said is 4%. So the, the difference, and, and uh, uh, let's say 40% said it's uh, the West, 20% uh, said it's Ukraine. So you see, the, the, this, the difference uh, is, is, was, is, was not very great. So, and that's why, that's why uh, today, I, I want to repeat, yeah, the, the war is an, it's unknown war. Uh, for the Russian public opinion. Nevertheless, uh, you mentioned this uh, poll of Alexei Navalny's organization. Yes, they did, uh, let's say, uh, internet uh, poll. Maybe sociologically, it's not very, very prudent, uh, but it demonstrates trends. In this situation, it's not very important what is the right number, 60% or 50%, but if you see that... Uh, uh, the number of Moscovites uh, who believe that Russia is an aggressor in this situation increased uh, 50%, one and a half times in just in a matter of a week. Okay, that's a trend. If you see that uh, the number of Moscovites who believe that the economic consequences of this war for Russia will be economic disaster increased uh, 50%, it's a trend. Yes, and this... Of, of course, younger generation see more catastrophic uh, consequences in economy because they are more linked to the modern world. They understand more what does it mean to travel abroad. They understand more what is freedom of internet. But nevertheless, even the elder generation says, yes, we believe that economic consequences will be very tough and the price Russia will pay will be very high. We want to definitely jump to you know some of the economic consequences that will face Russia in light of all of this war and, and sanctions and everything. But just continuing on with this propaganda in the media still, um, 
you know, do you have any uh, kind of just jumping to the conclusion to a big picture? I mean, what do you see then for for the youth in Russia, for those that are uh, a bit older, but still, you know, disillusioned with the state media uh, uh, or or illusioned by the state media? What do you see kind of is there any sort of breaking point here? Or does this just go on uh, for for a long time? Oh, it's a tough question. It's a good question, but I let's yeah. say uh, honestly, I have no answer, and uh, it is very difficult at the moment to make any predictions on the future of Russia in any uh, sphere uh, because uh, Russia Russia is in the free fall. You see, it's like you you are, you uh, took uh, a, a bobsleigh and you go down, and it's your first time. And you have no map, and you don't know how long is your trip, and you don't know what is at the end. Is it the concrete wall, or is it the soft, soft pedal? Yeah. So you are going down with a high speed. Situation is changing very rapidly, and you cannot understand what is behind you. You just have some sides on the left, on the right, and uh, you understand that situation is changing. Uh, the situation is becoming worse, worse, and worse. But you don't know what is the end. I think it will take uh, some time uh, uh, to recognize what has changed. Yeah, because uh, let's be honest, uh, the number of Russians who travel abroad more than uh, once time, one, one, one time per year is 6 million. 6 million is only 4% of Russian population. So 96%, they don't care. You have no foreign flights, pff, it's not a problem for us. Two-thirds of Russian population, they have no financial savings. Dollar uh, ruble devalued, ro uh, dollar revalued. Pff, what's dollar? I haven't seen it uh, any once in my life. Yeah. So uh, the, uh, the economic outcome as well as informational outcome, they will be more visible, let's say maybe one. Uh, in, in, some, in some areas, it will be visible immediately. Yeah, for example, uh, IKEA, uh, the, one of the most popular uh, uh, retail outlets uh, in Russia. Okay, they have closed their operations, and it's it's a disaster for the medium class. Yeah, but uh, what's what's going further on? How many goods will disappear from the shelves of the shops? From uh, we we have to see. We have to see. And the same is um, with the internet, with media, with information. Uh, the most advanced people they have recognized that uh, they have lost. Um, uh, sources of information, for example, it is very tough for me just to continue so, uh, writing my uh, di daily digest because the flow of news if has shrinked. Uh, okay, it's it's run and it's so so so, so limited. Yeah, but uh, for the rest of the people, they have to understand. Okay, Facebook is blocked, Twitter is blocked, and uh, social media are unavailable, and it will. Create some change, but uh, the changes in the public opinion they will be not immediate. Yeah, it's uh, the, the 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 media out any media outlet can be closed uh, in uh, in one minute in one second, while the change in the attitude and the recognition will take I don't know maybe a month maybe two months. And let's talk about the sanctions now because this has been one of the the consequences of the invasion that we know Putin was preparing for some kind of sanctions, especially from the financial part. He was, the Central Bank of Russia was diversifying the reserves for most of the last eight or 10 years. 
but the intensity and the scope of the sanctions and how so many countries and central banks uh, adhere to the sanctions. Do you think somehow the regime was not prepared for so many sanctions and so uh, pervasive? Uh, yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. Uh, from what we see uh, as a reaction of Russian authorities, Russian financial authorities, the decision they uh, announced, uh, the way in which decision uh, are announced, and uh, the text of the documents uh, demonstrates that uh, they were not prepared. And of course, the most significant uh, uh, blow was the freeze of the uh, accounts of the central bank. As, as, as I can see from what's going on in the Russian banking system, uh, more or less uh, central bank was prepared to the SWIFT, uh, to shut down of SWIFT, because uh, SWIFT finally, it's not, it's not a payment system, it's a messaging system. And uh, inside Russia, uh, you can communicate via uh, central bank channels, and with the rest of the world, you can use some other messenger system, like maybe they're old, they're slow, they will limit your access to financial markets, but you may use Telex, yeah? It's costly, uh, but it's, it's doable. It's like uh, fixed line uh, versus mobile cell phones. But definitely, definitely, uh, they were not ready that the dollar accounts, uh, corresponding accounts of Sberbank, the biggest Russian bank, one third of the banking system will be frozen, and that the assets of the central uh, accounts of the central bank will be frozen. So that's de that's definitely created a significant uh, effect on Russian financial system, and we may say that the domestic uh, foreign exchange market has collapsed uh, by the. Uh, Today, uh, it's Tuesday, uh, in Russia it's day off, and Monday in Russia was day off, and Sunday in Russia was day off. Uh, while uh, starting from Thursday, uh, the settlements on the uh, Moscow exchange, that is the main market for the foreign exchange transactions, uh, they halted because uh, banks were not able to push through their payments via, uh, through correspondent accounts. Yeah, and that created the situation when there were several exchange rates. There was an exchange rate of the Moscow exchange that is official central bank rate. And there was an exchange rate of the Bloomberg that was uh, where dollar was 15% uh, higher. And that's that demonstrates that, okay, it's but they were not prepared. And up to now, they don't know how to deal with it. And uh, so the pressure of sanctions will will mount from from day to day because even if when I say that uh, correspondent accounts of Sberbank, uh, the correspondent account is a way how uh, Sberbank or any Russian bank communicate with the rest of the world uh, when making payments in dollars. It's, it's done by correspondent account in uh, US banks. And that means that Sberbank cannot uh, make any transaction in dollars and it will be in effect only uh, in two weeks. So it was announced and the uh, U.S. Uh, Treasury gave uh, 30 days uh, to shift clients and so on and so forth. So it's understanding that this is inevitable creates a panic on Russian financial market. And the rubble exchange rate is it's collapsing. I mean, yesterday, you went all the way to almost 140, at least on the official market that I've seen. But perhaps on the black markets is even higher, 170 for uh, each dollar. Uh, what tools does the Central Bank of Russia 
have to combat to defend the robo, given that most of the reserves are effectively frozen? Uh, uh, <laughs> Central bank is a regulator of the market, and the main instrument uh, of any regulator uh, in uh, critical chaos situation is to impose different type of bans. Yeah. So, and uh, the central bank is doing this. Uh, first of all, the central bank uh, stopped all uh, uh, trading on the Moscow exchange in stocks and bonds. So, you, if you own uh, shares of Russian companies, of bonds, of Russian Ministry of Finance inside Russia, you cannot sell them because the exchange does not operate. Uh, second, uh, uh, central bank imposed ban on transaction, on foreign exchange transaction of Russian uh, citizens' households uh, to their accounts abroad. So legally, Russians are allowed to have to keep uh, accounts in their foreign banks, but central bank said, okay, no, no, the foreign exchange should stay in the country. Then the central bank banned uh, uh, transfers to your relatives. So if, for example, you work in Russia and you have high salary while your parents live somewhere in, I don't know, in Bulgaria, in Turkey, in Thailand, or your, your kid is in UK, German, French, American, Finnish university, and you need to send him funds, you cannot do it. You can send $5,000 per month, and that's a limit. Then uh, President Putin uh, imposed a ban on transactions, on foreign exchange transfers uh, for the companies and residents of 52 non-friendly countries. So 52 countries joined sanctions regime. Russian government declared them as non-friendly, and that's okay. All European Union, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. And so that's that's the main instrument. Do not allow do not allow uh, foreign currency to leave the country. It, it it seems to me that all these these measures to counteract the sanctions and the, the freeze of reserves is having such an impact in the capital markets in Russia that is turning the country into a virtually uninvestable place. And it might be this way for years to come, even after the war is over. How do you see this, this playing out? I know it's difficult to predict, but it's, it's a difficult scenario for country, for the Russia's capital markets and for Russia's economy. And Fernanda, yes, you are right uh, that Russia is ousted from the Western financial markets immediately. Uh, so effective uh, the day of invasion. Uh, and it will last for years. Uh, Russia experienced uh, such situation after the financial crisis of 98. And then after annexation of Crimea in 2014, uh, in 1998, it lasted some, some, somewhat like three years uh, before Russian economy recovered and uh, started to demonstrate uh, significant economic growth, 7-8% uh, a year. <clears throat> and uh, in 2014, uh, the impact of uh, Western sanctions lasted for two years. I'm afraid that this time the situation will be much longer and that it is related to the regime of sanctions. At least if we, if the United States and uh, uh, its allies in Europe will be consistent with their promises, uh, the announcement made by uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken that the sanctions will be in place 
uh, until Russia will withdraw troops and uh, repay all damages uh, to Ukraine. So we recognize that, first of all, the war is not over and we don't know how big will be the damage. And second, we can understand that it will be, I don't know, dozens, if not hundreds, billions of dollars. And so uh, even negotiations on this issue, understanding how Putin's brain are organized, may take years. And that means that this, if, if not a complete, uh, complete blockade of Russian banks and companies from the Western market, but significant financial constraint will go on for, for many, many years. Moreover, uh, answering your previous question on the financial, uh, on, uh, let's say, how Russian authorities try to prevent effect of sanctions, I forgot to mention that most recent decree signed by Vladimir Putin uh, last Saturday, when he gave a right to Russian entities, starting from Ministry of Finance to regions, uh, banks and companies, to repay their foreign debts in rubles. And if, uh, if Russian residents uh, who are repaying debts are paying uh, debt, uh, debts to the residents of those 52 non-friendly countries, they, ha they have to, they may, once again, not have to, but they may uh, pay, uh, place rubles in the special accounts that are restricted by the central bank. So uh, we, in the situation, uh, technically it's the default. Yes, because if, uh, if, for example, on April 4th, when the Minister of Finance has to repay, Russian Minister of Finance has to repay $3 billion of euro bonds, and it will pay some uh, portion of it in rubles to special accounts with non-convertibility or non-transferability of funds abroad, that's a, that's a default because there is a regulation and that may cause cross-default of all Russian euro bonds and that means a lot of legal disputes all over the world. And the same uh, applies to Russian companies. I don't know the end of the story, but last Sunday... Uh, March 6, it was a time, uh, maturity, maturity date for biggest Russian oil company, Rosneft, that is controlled by the government, to pay its $2 billion uh, bonds, euro bonds. And on the day, uh, at, at least as, as the end of Monday, uh, the funds were not transferred to the agent. So technically, Rosneft has another 29 days. Yeah, before technical default transforms into real default, financial default, legal default. But if a legal default occurs, that means Rosneft with all its oil export will be under litigations, under arrest and so on. So the, the situation is so unpredictable and so complicated that this financial blockade really may last for, for, for years. It's not, it's, not, it's not a question of one or two years. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's amazing. Um, on the topic of reserves, even in light of all of the steps and uh, difficulties that the central bank is making to uh, to convert into foreign currency, uh, we have obviously this unprecedented move of of freezing foreign reserves from foreign central banks that that the Bank of Russia has. I understand that they can still use these sort of in Russia, but outside of Russia, they're not going to be able to use them basically. Um, but can we dig deeper, a little bit deeper into the numbers there? Because my, uh, 
my wife actually she, she speaks russian she was happy uh she follows your commentary a lot and she enjoys it on uh Milof and so on and so forth other places she was glad we were speaking but she actually uh i, I didn't get the numbers from the russian central bank website or whatnot i know it's hard to actually access some of these sites right now as you know but um she gave me some numbers and I'm just curious if you could help us understand them just a little bit more. Cause I understand maybe it's a billion dollars a day that, that, that they're spending on the, in Ukraine. But, uh, as I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, the pre invasion Russian reserves, uh, which I assume is at the central bank and other government funds. Cause I think it's a little bit more than just at the central bank, uh, is about 640 billion was 640 billion. That's the pre invasion Russian reserves. And then as of now, I understand that they're down to like $190 billion, $130 billion of which is gold, and $60 billion of which is just yuan-based. Is that is that correct? Something like that? Uh, Matthew, more or less. It was uh, $643 billion, uh, $135, the latest number, in gold, and $77 billion in yuan. But um, on, on general, the, the, the magnitude is correct. Yes, that's true. So, yeah. So what does that mean for, uh, you know, I know it's, as you said, it's, it's a very fluid situation. It's very complicated. Uh, there's so many things that the Russian central bank could do or other central banks could do. Um, but yeah, if, if all they have really are foreign reserves to finance these big ticket items like the war, which, you know, I'm not sure if it is a billion dollars a day. That's a figure I've heard. But um, is it really that all they have is like unmovable gold and then, you know, yuan-based. Non-convertible yuan. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's true. No, let, let's let's start with the reserves. Yes, that's true. Uh, yuan is non-convertible. Maybe for uh, for the central bank purposes in the current situation to keep its, I don't know, 10, 12, 13% of its foreign reserves in yuan. Okay, you're right. Finally, China is one of the biggest trading partners. And if you have some agreements with the uh, uh, People's Bank of China, okay, it, it's it's convenient policy. But in the time of sanctions, it's definitely non-convertible. And it's not the currency that is needed for the Russian financial market. So uh, Russian, Russian, Russian banks companies, they borrowed in euros and in dollars, a little bit in Swiss francs and pounds, but not in yuans. So and that's that means that the, the, these these um, funds these reserves they are okay non convertible in my view gold is physical it's all kept in Russia so it's uh, it's uh, in the hands of the central bank in the hands of Kremlin but the coal, gold physical gold you have to sell it yeah and we have to understand that uh, it is uh, two thousand two hundred fifty metric tons of gold. So it's uh, it's a, a huge number of planes to leave Russia, and foreign planes are not allowed in the airspace of Russia. And Russia, okay, so it's it's not an easy an easy story to sell this amount of gold, and it's not in, okay. And the, the next question: uh, Who will buy this gold? Because uh, if uh, if the seller will be the central bank or the Minister of Finance, uh, the dollar proceeds or euro proceeds they will be uh, frozen immediately. So technically, it's not it's not an easy story. Nevertheless, I I think that uh, the situation at, at least uh, in the current account in the current account it's not as tough because Russia 
historically has a positive current account. That means its export is much bigger than its import. And in, uh, in the stable situation, that means that inflows of foreign exchange to accounts of Russian banks, not central bank, but Russian financial system, are bigger than outflows. And as I said, central bank organized a circle of uh, interbank, uh, inter-Russian banks, Russian interbanks, uh, correspondent accounts in dollars and euros. So they may say, they may make settlements, payments among themselves without uh, showing those transactions to uh, European Central Bank or to Federal Reserve. So within Russia, banks may settle in dollars and may settle in euros, including Central Bank. Central Bank may keep, for example, its the, some portion of its dollar reserves, for example, in the account of, uh, I don't know, Gazprom Bank. Maybe not significant portion, but let's say several billion dollars, it's possible. Yeah, And nobody will be able to identify that those are funds of the central bank. Yeah, and uh, uh, so the and e, uh, the problem is with the capital outflow. And that's why, the, that's the main reason for the bans that is imp that are imposed by the central bank, by president, because if you allow capital outflow, uh, the, okay, you don't know how much uh, foreign exchange, how, how big will be the demand for foreign exchange and how much... Uh, dozens of billions of dollars, you will lose every day. And that's why uh, in the current account situation is more or less stable. And the problem with uh, for financial authorities is uh, capital account. As to the war, I strongly disagree with this number uh, because uh, as, uh, as an economist, uh, you should understand there is a difference between stocks and flows. Uh, when And you should not, you cannot add stocks to flows. When we see that uh, Russia is the Russian army losing its tanks, its missile launchers, its trucks, and so on, that's about the stock. Uh, those stocks of weapons, of machines, they were paid two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. But in the current calculations of the Minister of Finance or of the Minister of Finance or of Kremlin, uh, the, their price is zero. You don't need to spend any any cent yeah, to, to, to say, okay, I, I need to, to, to replenish, I need to repay. Of course, in, in, in the medium run, a minister after the war will end, uh, the minister of defense will say, okay, now we need more money to re rebuild tanks, trucks, missiles, blah, 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 blah. But in the current run, it's about stocks. Yes, you lose your stocks, but that, that does not affect your flows. Uh, and marginal flows for the military operation, for the war, uh, in my mind, they are not as significant. It's about wages for the soldiers, yeah, and a little bit of fuel. So it's it could not be it could not be one billion dollar a day, like 10 x less than that, you know, hundred million or. I would say yes. I would say yes. I would mm -hmm. say something like that. Okay, interesting. And uh, still regarding the the sanctions, uh, you mentioned the cap the current account and the exports being higher than the imports. That's mostly because of oil and gas and some other commodities. But we, since we are seeing a possible escalation of the conflict, or at least the conflict is not yet being resolved, it's gonna take longer. We might see the sanctions escalating to oil and gas. Uh, this, I think. 
today is Tuesday. It seems that Joe Biden is already threatening to ban Russian oil. Germany doesn't want to ban Russian oil and gas yet. Yesterday, the, I think it was the Minister of Finance from Russia all, all, already threatened to embargo gas and not supply gas through Nord Stream 1. So we might get to this scenario of stopping the flow of oil and gas from Russia, therefore money financing Russia. So once this happens, my first question is, do you think this is going to happen? And the second question is, if this does happen, how much do you think this is going to impact the Russian economy and the war effort as well? Mm, okay, uh, Fernando, it's a great question, but I have to split it in parts. Uh, uh, first of all, we have to understand, okay, uh, oil embargo is on the table. And we know that it is under discussions, uh, under considerations, and maybe something may happen. But we have to understand that there is a different uh, collateral damage for the United States and, for example, for Germany. Yeah, Yes, United States is one of the biggest importers of Russian oil. Yes, because uh, American uh, refineries, they have substituted Venezuelan oil by Russian because of chemical composition. So you don't need to spend a lot of money to readjust uh, your equipment. To uh, If you substitute Venezuelan oil by Arab oil, you need more heavier investment. Yeah, and Russian oil is more convenient for this. Uh, and if... If uh, the United States uh, impose ban on import of Russian oil, okay, that means that uh, tankers that uh, carry uh, Russian oil will stop in the middle of the ocean, and the owners of those of this oil will start negotiating with consumers in other countries, which are India, China, you know, maybe some other countries in Asia, like Pakistan. And, okay, yes, guys, why not? Russian oil, no problem. 20% discount, 30% discount. But that means that uh, on the, let's say, real economy, that means that oil production will go on in Russia. Yes, uh, and uh, the wells uh, will pump oil. Uh, pipelines will deliver oil to the seaports. And uh, ships will carry oils, uh, oil all over the world. Okay, the price will be less. It will be not 110, but let's say $80 per barrel or even $70 per barrel. But it's not a disaster. It's not a disaster. Russian budget is uh, composed for this year as zero, bell, as zero deficit with an uh, oil price level of $44 per barrel. And the exchange rate of something like uh, $72 per barrel. So pff, Russian... Okay, there will be a little bit less of current exchange or foreign exchange in the accounts of the oil companies, maybe a little bit less or, uh, because of the exchange rate, even more ruble revenues for the Minister of Finance, uh, while uh, U.S. refineries will need to invest in the readjustment of their equipment. Uh, but it will be, it will be psychologically and, uh, let's say, in PR, as, as perception, it will be visible as a strong action. Why Germany is against? Germany and Poland, uh, these are two countries that import bulk of Russian oil by pipeline. Russia exports only 
15 less than 15 percent uh something like 13 and a half percent of its oil by pipeline to europe that is former uh, pipeline Drushba friendship and it supply oil it supplies oil to poland and germany and it will be very difficult for germany to um i i, I think both countries both countries germany and poland they have limited uh, capacities in their seaports to absorb uh, oil delivered by uh, by sea poland definitely has no such capacities and that means that those two countries they will pay much higher price for these sanctions and that's why they are against it yeah because they it's not an issue uh, of course the western world may agree to substitute russian oil by arab oil or by i don't know african oil and uh, russian oil will go to china it will lead to some increase in oil price and uh, western society western countries ready to absorb higher gas prices uh, gasoline prices but uh, it will not affect pr current production current production may be affected if germany and poland agree to cut their import of oil but how they can solve their domestic problem uh, it's it's a great question mark for me and more or less the same happens with gas yes uh, russia supplies gas by pipeline to europe and it's about electricity it's about electricity production in central europe in southeastern europe in germany uh, and uh, okay and uh, no uh, alternatives no alternatives I, I i i heard about this statement of russian deputy prime minister uh, that russia is ready to uh, may may cut a supply of gas by north stream one uh, and i wonder it, it was this statement uh, agreed with gazprom because gazprom in this situation has two options first if uh, if north stream is blocked by russia gazprom may deliver gas to europe by uh, via ukraine their spare capacity and so that means that uh, gazprom uh, will have to pay more money to ukraine to uh, deliver gas gas to its consumers otherwise if it is complete uh, stop uh, complete halt of export of russian gas to europe gazprom has to freeze wells that is costly and gazprom has to go to litigations in different countries of europe because it uh, okay, it's violently it has violated contracts and it will be costly and assets of Gazprom will be arrested. But a day before, Gazprom repaid its bonds in dollars just in time. So I think it's a more emotional statement of Russian uh, uh, deputy prime minister rather than uh, economically calculated and rational. Yeah, there's a lot of energy dependence still from Europe, uh, as has been talked about a lot uh, on Russia. I guess two questions still regarding this. Uh, you know, it's a horrible war right now. I'm, I have friends in Ukraine. We've talked about it a lot. I really feel for all of these people. We would all love it to stop. But economically, how the Kremlin might be looking at this, um, the first question would be, even if they just left right now and agreed on something and just left Ukraine. I presume that all of the sanctions that exist probably will stay in place for some time. So do you think that um, the Western world, I guess, still has the upper hand, even though it is very energy dependent on Russia? Or uh, do you think the 
Kremlin somehow can get their get themselves out of the pre prediction, you know, the predicament that they're in. And then the second question would be, are we at the point with sanctions that the Kremlin is looking at this, as has been kind of mentioned, like as an act of war? Is this is the, are we at the point of sanctions on Russia where this is kind of an act of war? Well, great question, Matthew. Great question. Uh, we started our discussion with a statement that uh, Russia, Kremlin, they have underestimated sanctions, the pressure of sanctions, the magnitude of sanctions. And uh, another point uh, we need uh, to emphasize, in my view, Putin is still unaware of how strong sanctions have hit Russian economy and what is the damage for the Russian economy. At least uh, his uh, political rhetorics has not changed and the uh, activities of Russian militaries in Ukraine, they have not changed. They even more cruel became in the uh, recent days. And that means that he does not change his assessment of the situations, of costs and benefits. And uh, I, I think that the price Russia will pay economically will be huge. And I believe that the West will not remove sanctions even if the war ends uh, to, to today or tomorrow, the West will not remove sanctions uh, for many months, even not years. And I would say that the last point is the most important. It's not only about capital markets. And it's not, then the capital markets are not the most important. Finally, when if the country like Russia has a strong capital uh, current account surplus, that means uh, the economy has a lot of domestic savings, and it's the, the, okay. That means that uh, economy has uh, has money, but money is not capital. Capital and money is not the same story. And what we see as the most significant impact of Western sanctions is is decoupling. We, uh, this was, was used, uh, okay, like decoupling between emerging markets and developed markets. But nowadays we can say that uh, uh, the West is decoupling Russia from its technological systems and from its institutional systems. Yeah, so SWIFT is a uh, financial institution. Uh, correspond dollar correspondent accounts is financial institution. Import of uh, high-tech components for the productions, it's about technological cooperation, technological decoupling. And uh, Russia is strongly dependent on import. Russia was never producer of, uh, of technologies. Uh, the Tsarist Russia was importing technologies. The Soviet Union was importing technologies. Russia, under the, after the disintegration of the Soviet Union, was importing technologies. And China cannot substitute the West because China is not producing advanced technologies. Yeah? And that means that this decoupling of, of economy is the strongest uh, measure, the, the strongest sanction that ever we have seen, because Russian economy is huge, and it has a huge manufacturing uh, business. Uh, Russia may be happy that before, uh, before the invasion, Russia produced something like 80% of cars uh, inside the country, but there were assemblies, as assembly plants. Uh, the 50, more than 50% of components came from, European, uh, from Europe and America. 
And all those, this import here has stopped because container companies, they don't want to deliver containers, shipping companies don't want to deliver containers to Russia. Uh, if uh, uh, Taiwan's uh, TSMC stopped uh, to supply chips to Russia, that means Russian companies, they cannot produce refrigerators, uh, dishwashing machine, washing machines, micro ovens, all of this requires uh, these uh, chips, maybe not, not, not the most advanced chips, but, but, but Russia does not produce them uh, as it is. And that's why the, uh, the final economic costs of Ra for Russia as, as a result of decoupling, if it's not, I, 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 I do not discuss, I don't know the amount of uh, compensation reparations to Ukraine. It's about how, uh, what is the damage, what is the damage for the Russian economy out of decoupling it will be tremendous. And, okay, uh, if uh, if you say it is economic war, yes, it is. Yeah, it's a hybrid war. Yes, uh, the, the West, the United States, the Europe said, okay, Russia, Putin, we, can, we will not fight with you because of Ukraine. For some other reasons, because we understand the price of this war. But we are ready to fight with you in economy as a hybrid war. And you will pay the price. So I would say that economic war is the right word because the decoupling is this much stronger instrument than financial sanctions themselves. So just so just to get uh, clear about the sanctions or the embargo of oil and gas by Europe, do you think this is a last resort type of sanctions that for now is out of the question? Uh, Fernanda, if... I am a decision maker. Uh, sanctions is an instrument of diplomacy. And you have a set of sanctions that may affect different sectors of the Russian economy. And I would not use oil and gas sanctions as the most efficient. In any sanctions, you have to measure costs and benefits. And those sanctions, they are not the cheapest one for me if I impose sanctions. I will choose some other. Okay, perfect. So I, I want to refer to something you wrote yesterday, which, which I, I found very interesting. You said that the Bolsheviks are back. And I agree with you that the, the capital in Russia, this is very important. I mean, the stock of capital, meaning the factories, companies, real estate, machinery, equipments. And when all of these Western companies and global companies are leaving Russia, they're leaving a lot of this real estate and real assets behind. And they might be taken over by private Russian companies or even state-owned companies. So we might be seeing, as you wrote, a nationalization of assets in Russia. This is also something very concerning for the Russian economy going forward. Can you elaborate a bit further on this aspect, what you mentioned, the nationalization of assets within Russia? Uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday it was uh, Sunday, yeah, uh, Monday. It was Monday. Uh, the chief of staff of the Putin's party, that is called United Russia, made a statement. It's it's not an official statement of the president, of the prime minister, of someone of the government, but that's the okay. That's a bureaucrat of the party, uh, rather influential, uh, who said that uh, we may treat uh, the uh, the Western companies left Russia and we may treat it as an intentional bankruptcy. And because of that, we may nationalize those companies. 
So that was the statement. It's not quotation, but that was the statement. And that means that the problem that many uh, industrial companies, many technological companies, many logistic companies that are owned by the foreigners, they will stop their operations. That means uh, not only unemployment, but as well shortage of uh, some goods, some of some services. <clears throat> and that means that Russian authorities, they, uh, they think how to fight with this uh, effect of uh, moral behavior of Western companies. It's, it's not about sanctions. It's about, uh, it's about moral behavior. And uh, he believes that if, for example, if Russian government will nationalize those companies, that means the Russian government will be legally allowed to operate those companies. Because if you are a Western producer uh, with a plant in Russia and you close this plant and stop all operations, okay, legally it's your property, but it's 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 uh, it's it's even not real estate. Yeah, it's it's a stock of uh, buildings and equipment. So to to make it capital, to make it uh, enterprise, to make it company, you need uh, it to operate. You need labor force. You need management. And he believes that if uh, the government will nationalize uh, all those companies, it legally will be allowed to operate them. But uh, he. Uh, He's definitely economically uneducated person. Uh, uh, <laughs> so I look on his on his bio, and he does not understand that uh, the owner ownership over buildings and equipment it does not make the company operational. Yeah, and that means, on the one hand, uh, that if those decisions are taken, and if the government will adopt, uh, or, or Russian courts will adopt uh, these some type of these decisions. That means that uh, foreign companies or foreign investors, they lose their property in Russia. But on the other hand, the uh, Russian, uh, okay, Russia may sell those companies to, to give it under management to some Russian businesses, businessmen, uh, but they will hardly be operational. Moreover, it's once again it's legal disputes for a long time. But on the other hand, if, let's say, sometime later, uh, uh, let's say the war is over, the peace with Ukraine is signed, reparations are agreed, and the Western companies say, okay, I'm ready to uh, reopen my business in Russia, there will be an issue of restitution, <laughs> how to give the property back. So it's a very dangerous way. It's a very dangerous way because it creates problems. And once again, I do not see a lot of benefits. But it's, 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 it's one of the demonstrations that uh, Russian authorities, they are in panic. They are ready to make any decision that seems for them viable. If he believes that it's a good decision without any analysis, Putin doesn't like analysis. There is no any guy around him who can say, stop, you underestimate this. This, is, this, this assumption is wrong. He, is, uh, he wants a yes man. Uh, yes, boss, man around him. And that's why this is the low quality of Russian bureaucracy on all levels. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh, two, two more questions from my side on Ukraine. Um, well, really on trying to end the war in Ukraine, I guess. Uh, the first is these sanctions for everyday Russians. We know that they're censored and really not getting the information they need to. Uh, to stop the war. And I understand that there's like a million Amon police and 
Moscow and St. Petersburg. And that's the number I heard as far as like, you know, protesting. And as you said, 15 years for using the word war. So protests seem pretty tough. Um, but as far as the sanctions that are in place right now, economically against Russia, the first question is, do you think that they would hurt the everyday Russian more than the oligarch society and the Kremlin or 50-50, something like that? Um, and then the set. Well, let me just ask that question first. Just that question first. Uh, Matthew, I think that uh, sanctions uh, will hurt uh, the upper half of the Russian population. So if we have, let's say, if we split uh, the Russian population by income, the lower 50%, sooner they will not feel it. Of course, they will feel inflation, uh, and inflation will be um, spread over all uh, products, even foodstuff, even though foodstuff produced in Russia, but uh, they will not be able to uh, link this inflation with the war. Uh, at least it will not be visible for them. And uh, in the upper half of, of the population, uh, once again, the sanctions, uh, the effect of sanctions, the effect of war, the price of war will be different. Uh, the more uh, imported goods or imported food is in your basket, uh, the more sensitive you are to, uh, to devaluation and uh, to inflation. Uh, ruble uh, has lost, uh, the price of dollar increased, even if we take an uh, official exchange rate of the central bank, it increased by 55%. If we measure by the exchange offices of the banks on the streets of Moscow, it's by, let's say, 80%. And uh, the prices for imported goods in the shops, they uh, skyrocket with the same uh, speed or even higher. Because in many shops, you may hear the phrase, okay, maybe it's the last one. We don't know when the stock will be replenished. Yeah, and of course, that means that uh, you go to the shop and you see that the price yesterday was 10% lower than today. And it's visible for everyone. And of course, uh, people who purchase imported goods, they will feel it every day and, and uh, okay, for, for, the, for the foreseeable future. The same is with those people who uh, are accustomed uh, to travel abroad, to spend their holidays in, uh, in Europe, or to purchase uh, European luxury goods in the fashion shops uh, in Moscow, they, they, you may find pictures of uh, those shops that are empty. Uh, shelves are empty. Yeah, so all, all shops are closed, all, uh, all goods have disappeared, and the biggest malls, the most fashionable malls, uh, okay, no, no, nobody is inside. And that, that, that will continue. That will continue. I, I think that uh, one of the effects of the sanctions uh, will, that will be widespread once again uh, within the upper half of the population, it's uh, uh, the housing market, because the mortgage rates, they follow the uh, interest rate imposed by the central bank. And before invasion, even after the central bank has increased its uh, key rate to 9%, the mortgage rate was something between 9 and 11 and Today, it's between 15 and 20. And that means that the demand for mortgages will be much lower. That means the problem with the construction sector. And many Russian families will not be able to 
to purchase a new house. So it, that's that's I effect, and they are they are visible. They are visible. We don't. We, uh, once again, there are there are people who see those the effect of sanctions every day, maybe several times per day, and they recognize very well what's going on. There are people uh, who face the effect of sanctions, let's say, from time to time. Sergey, uh, we want to be sensitive to your time. This is very interesting. Do you have 10 or 15 more minutes? Yes, sure, Matthew. Let's do it. Okay, great. So the second question I wanted to ask you then uh, following up to that is, you know, from the Western perspective, it's all we can do, it seems at the moment, besides, of course, the direct aid to Ukraine, uh, you know, no boots are going on the ground from the West, um, which I think is, is is probably good at the moment uh, for, for, for many reasons, at least compared to how Russia is viewing this aggression and this war. Uh, my question would be, is there any, you know, I, I don't know how you would, it, it maybe feels weird asking you this, a, R- a Russian citizen and former central bank uh, governor and, and fin- finance minister, but is there any other sanction that you can see that would help put an end to this war quicker, uh, sooner rather than later that is not currently implemented? Mm, uh, okay, Matthew, let me uh, let me come to the very end. What could be the strongest possible sanctions for Russia? Let's say let's say one hundred percent without this debating about in which increments uh, to freeze all correspondent accounts of all Russian banks in euros, dollars, pounds, Swiss francs, yens, and so on of all banks. Yeah, not, not of only Sberbank, VTB, that is 50% of the Russian banking system, but of all banks. And uh, to ban all export to Russia. All export, including consumer goods. That's it. That's the maximum of sanctions that may be imposed on Russia. Pause for thought now. <laughs> Uh, I I, want to ask you also, since you were at the Central Bank of Russia during the 98 financial crisis, how does the current economic crisis in Russia compares to the 1998 one? Great question, Fernando. Uh, On the surface, on the surface, or even maybe from outside, uh, all financial crises, they are alike. But uh, between 98 and uh, 2022 crises, uh, there is a very big difference. Uh, in uh, 98, uh, it was uh, constructive destruction. Yeah, in fact, Russia was in the very deep financial crisis because of the poor budgetary discipline, because Russia was not able to collect tax revenues and was not able to control its expenditures and that led to the huge budget deficit and uh, to short-term borrowing and we understand very well that we the uh, medicine uh, will the surgery will be very painful but we were very sure that this surgery will be creative destruction so we knew that uh, the decisions we are going to implement they will result in the recovery of the Russian economy because of uh, incorporated nature's features of any economy, not only Russian. And we were 100% right. Despite a financial crisis in Russia lasted 
maybe until end the first quarter 99, the economic recovery started in uh, November 98. So just three months after, the Russian uh, industry demonstrated 10% growth rate. Yeah, so that's that was creative destruction. We know, we knew that uh, it was painful. Russian society, Russian companies, Russian investors, Russian households, they suffered a lot. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the cost benefits, okay, we, we, we knew why, why Russia has to pay this price. The current crisis, uh, and, and one more, in 98, in fact, it was inevitable. Yeah, the other option uh, for the government and for the central bank was monetary financing of the budgetary expenditures. That means hyperinflation. But finally, you have to end hyperinflation by the same set of measures. Yeah, maybe you could devalue your domestic debt, but devaluing domestic debt, you are increasing the pressure of the foreign debt, which is nominated with foreign exchange. So it's a, 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 a not evident solution. But nevertheless, you, either way, you have to implement this macroeconomic stabilization plan. Uh, today, uh, the crisis of 90, if we talk about economic crisis of 22, it is handmade. So it's intentionally created crisis because it could be avoided if there is no invasion of Ukraine. Okay, there is no economic crisis. And this crisis does not lead to any creation. Yeah, it's a destructive destruction. So it's the all measures, all measures uh, implemented by financial authorities, despite their right or wrong, they are targeted on reducing negative effect of sanctions, not solving the problem, because the problem is not in, in, in economics. The problem is not in macroeconomics. The problem is not in exchange rate, in the budgetary discipline. Macroeconomic fundamentals of the Russian economy, they tremendously uh, sound. But the problem is that the problem of economic crisis is political decisions. And central bank governor, minister of finance, prime minister, they cannot affect Putin's mentality. Yeah, and that's why that is the biggest difference. This crisis is handmade and is leading to destruction, not to creation. Interesting. Uh, I have two more questions. I know that Matthew also has at least one. Uh, we could go on for longer here because it's it's so uh, important to get your view, given your experience and the, the all the you have first-hand experience in the economy in the country, and you, you know how uh, the political system works. But given the the rhetoric, the rhetoric we see on the West, on the media, and some people that they say, you said that this invasion was done by Russia. So the, Russia didn't have to invade Ukraine. And I agree. But there's a lot of people saying that somehow the West, yes, provoked this and that Putin was left with no other choice but to invade. How do you respond to this kind of critics? Uh, it's bullshit. Uh, it's 100% or like in Russia we say it's 136% bullshit because in one of the elections Russian Electoral Committee published a result where the sum was 146%. Uh, there is uh, Putin <laughs> yeah, uh, making, making decision about invasion of Ukraine. Putin has not demonstrated any fact that there was some 
preparation for aggression on behalf of Ukraine. And you should be crazy if you are president of Ukraine uh, to invade of Russia, whose military might is definitely, I don't know, 10, 10, 10 folds stronger. Yeah, it's, you should be really crazy. And uh, there was no any significant uh, NATO troops along the eastern border of NATO. And there was no any reasons uh, for to uh, wait for any invasion from NATO, from, uh, from any Western countries. And well, uh, I, I don't know, I don't want to say, I don't want to say that uh, uh, the, West, the West does not carry any responsibility. Of course, uh, I started to ask this question uh, when uh, I still was in Moscow somewhere in 2010-11, meeting uh, Western uh, ambassadors from different countries. My question was, okay, guys, how do you see relations of the West with future Russia, let's say 20 years from now, when Putin is not in power? What, what, what do you propose? How do you want to build? How, what is your policy towards Russia? Who, how do you see Russia? And there was no answer. And uh, Putin, maybe because of his age, maybe because of his past, maybe of both, maybe of his uh, virtual reality, he, is, he believes in the world of fears. He, believe, he lives in the world of uh, manias. And in his mind, Russia is the country, Russia, Tsarist Russia, Soviet Russia, his Russia, uh, is the country that was invaded by foreigners permanently. If you look on the history of Russia from 19th and 20th century, you will be able to find, let's say, two and a half episodes when Russia was invaded. It was Napoleonic War in 1812. It was uh, Second World War, a great patriotic war in Russia in 1941. And we may debate about the First World War, about the Great War. Yeah, because uh, it's okay... Technically and legally, yes, Austria and Germany invaded of Russia, but Russia was um, moving first steps, uh, saying we uh, we want to support Serbia. Yeah. So, but even if we take the First World War, it was only three times in the history. And uh, if you look on the history of Russian invasions, I would say that it's about twenty times in nineteenth century and about the same number in the twentieth century. Yeah. But Putin believes that Russia is is the desirable target of the West. That the West wants to grab, take Russia over, to grab it, to split its resources, to take control over the country. And his fears became more and more evident from 2007 onward. And the West did not react to that. The West did not pay attention to Russia at all. So Russia, uh, the Western politicians, they were not, uh, they believed that the hard power, military power is off the table. And they believe that Russia with its two and a half or two percent of GDP in the global economy is, is not important. And this humiliation of Putin led to different reactions. He believed that the West is weak, that the Europe is disintegrated, then that the NATO is uh, non-efficient, and he may use, okay, he relied on hard power. I believe, from, okay, definitely, I believe that the war uh, with Ukraine is the greatest strategical mistake of Putin. And until the invasion, uh, in my analysis, I usually say that 
I, I do not believe in the war because it does not lead to any benefits. It's irrational decision. So I, 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 I'm not lying, looking on Putin as a politician, as a Russian politician for 22 years, and I thought he was rational in any of his decisions before that. I could explain why, uh, why he did this or that. Invading of Ukraine is irrational decision. Because if you are, I may, I, I believe, I really believe that he was afraid of NATO. He is afraid of the United States. He is paranoically afraid of uh, war, that the United States wants to launch a war and grab his territory and remove him from power. But if you want safety, if you want security, the best way to reach a security is to agree with your opponent, is to negotiate with the opponent on your uh, about your concerns. And when he started to blackmail the West in November, December last year, the West has made some shifts in the, the, its behavior. Yeah, finally, the Western leaders recognized, okay, it's serious. Let's talk to this guy. And the West was ready to negotiate. Just remember, uh, a couple of days before invasion, President Biden was ready to meet Putin. So the United States, the West were ready to negotiate. So if, if you really believe that uh, Russia is insecure, okay, negotiate it. And it will be definitely more efficient. And you demonstrate, okay, I reached my goals. With his decision, with his invasion of Ukraine, uh, Putin, okay, he consolidated Europe, transformed it into political and military bloc. Putin has consolidated NATO. Putin moved more NATO forces closer to the borders of Russia. Uh, Putin called more US troops to the borders of Russia. And so strategically, from the security viewpoint, he reached quite uh, he reached quite opposite goals than he declared. So I believe that yes, we we may blame the West for some mistakes, but definitely we could not blame the West for the war. The war is personal decision of Putin, and it's completely irrational. Let me ask my last question, and I want to quote from your last newsletter. Yes, you wrote the following, and I quote: "I have said many times that Putin's system would not outlive its creator." The decision of the past two weeks have made me increasingly confident of that, end quote. How do you see this playing out? Perhaps a uh, state coup within Russia? Or how, Or uh, I want to have you <laughs> elaborate more on this sentence. Because it's, uh, it's a great question. It's a billion-dollar question, or even $10 billion question. Uh, we don't know how Putin's system will end. Definitely nobody knows. But we know very well that all dictatorships end. We don't know what will be the next. Uh, and when I say that the Putin, Putin system will not uh, out-survive his, his, his creator, I, I say, I mean uh, that uh, the system we see in Russia today is the system where Putin is playing the role of all checks and balances. He is the centerpiece of the system, and without this system, uh, okay, Internal tensions, internal conflicts, internal counterbalances, without this center element, they will destroy one another. So the system will collapse immediately, despite who is the next leader of Russia and despite what is his uh, political orientation. Yeah. So, and if historically we debate how how dictatorship ends, okay, it's uh, there are three main, uh, or let's say two main ways. 
First, it is a natural issue, okay, uh, as all human, Putin is a human being, and uh, he may end his life sooner or later, and nobody knows when and why. Uh, second, uh, it's about uh, a coup d'etat. Yeah, so people around him, uh, people close to power, uh, they are more rational than himself. They recognize that the damage he's, uh, he br brought to Russian economy, uh, to, Russian, to Russia as a nation, as a country, is so huge that every next day of his staying in power creates a situation even more tough for the next generation, for their sons, for themselves. And they, they remove him from power, one way or another. And uh, the third way, uh, it is when, uh, it's once again, it's historically that very often dictators uh, lose power when they start unsuccessful war. Uh, and I'm not sure that Putin has any end game vision with the war in Ukraine. Uh, yes, Russian army is much stronger. Yes, uh, Russian army may defeat Ukrainian army, but that is not the end of the war. Because the end of the war is uh, capitulation of Ukraine, some capitulation act signed by the legitimate president of Ukraine, which in my mind will not happen. And that means it's about occupation of Ukraine, it's about guerrilla war. We see how courageous Ukrainian citizens are. They are ready to resist even in the occupied cities uh, against Russian militaries. And uh, the price of guerrilla war will grow up. And that's why this will destroy economy more, more and more. But the end story is that the burden of the war will destroy dictators. So that's, uh, I, would, I would be happy to say that I see the scenario of the political unrest in Russia, that Russian citizens will go to the streets with uh, anti-war marches and uh, protests. Unfortunately, history does not support this hypothesis. It's a very, very rare case. Even economic troubles, um, they do not cause political changes. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, it's really wild times. And um, just Godspeed to everyone in Ukraine. Uh, Sergey, I just have two more questions. Kind of quick, I think. Uh, the first one's backing up to the sanctions again. And it's kind of a historical one. I've always been fascinated with uh, Cold War history, novels, spy craft, and these things. Uh, it is my understanding, and I, I think it's I've read it in enough books, that after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, when the KGB was dissolving, it basically uh, it had a really vast array of uh, slush funds and shell companies and networks outside of Russia. Um, and I'm wondering, and, and my understanding is obviously Putin being the KGB man, I believe that that network certainly still exists if it's not strengthened. Is there anything there uh, where they may be able to evade sanctions, even though we think we know where the bank accounts are? We know that Putin has so many cashiers, as they're called, so many shell companies in front of him or behind him. Uh, is it so that the uh, that the, the the web of of slush funds and outside sort of shell companies 
is is quite large for the Kremlin. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Um, let me st start uh, with the first part with the Soviet Union and KGB. Uh, plenty of rumors on this issue about it's called Zolota Party, gold of the party, of the Communist Party, uh, but nobody was able to identify any significant piece of this gold, uh, despite all archives are available. And uh, we should not forget that uh, uh, the currency regime in the Soviet Union was very strict, that all currency was consolidated in one particular place, in the Vnyashikonam Bank, and was under strict control of the Gosplan and the Communist Party. So we may, we may assume that there are dozens, if not hundreds, of small companies. Some of them may have a million dollars invested at that time, maybe even 10 million. But in the Soviet Union, definitely it was not uh, about billions. As of today, I'm quite sure that uh, the Kremlin, if we uh, say about Putin and his nearest circle of friends, not uh, Kremlin staff, they do have some financial assets at their disposal, uh, at least at their names, and they have access to them. Maybe they can use them. Uh, the biggest problem is that uh, they cannot leave Russia. You see, when we say about decoupling, it's not only technological, it's physical decoupling. What's, what's the value of the best yacht you have in Caribbeans or in Polynesia if you cannot fly there? Okay, you may have beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful uh, villa uh, in Nice or in, <clears throat> uh, in Italy, in Sicily, in Tuscany, but if you are not able to visit this place, the value of this villa is zero. Yes, you may have some account opened to your, not to your name, but to the name of the very uh, good friend or the company, shell company, and you may have a billion of dollars or euros there. But if you cannot use any cent of this money, and if you cannot sign, uh, visit your bank, uh, sign any, uh, bill, okay, the value of this fund is zero. So I believe that they are not uh, legally, technically, they are not poor people. And they have access to huge financial resources. But they, ha they have access to these resources in the world which is not decoupled. In the decoupled world, the situation mm. is different. This time is different. Yeah, interesting. Okay, and then just last one for me. Um... We've talked so much about censorship and the propaganda in Russia. Uh, some of our Western viewers may be confused on how you're so outspoken. Uh, obviously, you're not in Russia. I'm just curious personally. I mean, how, how is how are you looking at Russia personally? I, I presume during this time and I don't know, maybe ever. I, I'm just, just curious. I, I presume you're never going back to Russia or is that uh, a goal of yours still? It's my goal. Uh, I cannot go to Russia because there is a warrant. Uh, I am uh, I'm the wanted person in Russia, and I, I would say I may say that I have one-way ticket. I may go there, but if if uh, airplanes, air companies allow, allows, but I, I soon I will not be able to leave Russia. I will go to to, to jail, and uh, like Alexei Navalny when he arrived to Moscow. Uh, my dream is really to come back to Russia. I have many friends. I have uh, my mother there. 
uh, and uh, uh, but it is possible only after Putin regime collapse. So the next day, as the window opens, as the window opens, I will fly to Russia. Sergey, I want to thank you very much for your time. This has been a very important conversation, and I hope it uh, enlightens a lot of the issues we are seeing right now, this ongoing war, the decimation of the Ukrainian population, the economy, the Russian economy as well. So it's been very fascinating, important conversation. Thank you very much. And I want to uh, give you some more seconds or minutes if you have a, a final message to our viewers, something we have not spoken uh, yet, please uh, feel free. Oh, Fernando, Matthew, thank you very much for these very interesting discussions. In fact, I believe that we have, we have been able all together to look on the different aspects of the economic situation in Russia and the economic price of the war. Uh, I, I, the only one phrase I want to say is that it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. The story is go on. Unfortunately, it's not a show. It's a war. And the price of war will increase for Russia, definitely for Ukraine. It, uh, for Ukraine, this war will be much more costly. And I think that the West should be ready to help Ukraine after the war. That's the, will be the more, we should not forget about this. Yeah, we should not forget and we should not forgive Putin for this war. That's it. Thank you very much, Sergey. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Fernando. Thank, Thank you, you, Sergey. Nice Thank to meet you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you.